you would turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3, the book of Genesis, so page 3 of your Bibles, or the Bibles in seats in front of you. Uh, We're in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. You are here today because God has you here. Um, He has for you in His Word... a lesson about who you are and why you are like you are and why this world is like it is. And God has you here to hear this. I want you to have faith to receive God's word, to hear it with faith and listen, to give ear to it. This text is in the Bible so that you can know why you need Jesus Christ. That's what it's for. It's so that you can know yourself and the ruin of sin, so that you can fear God, and as Dennis just prayed, eternal ruin in hell, and might turn to the great promise of salvation that is only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so you're here by God's grace to hear that. And so I pray that you can receive it. Let me read these verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's pray. Holy Father, your word is right and true. Give us ears now to hear and faith to receive, that we might live unto your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So you end chapter 2 with this note of they were naked and not ashamed. 
And if you're a careful reader, you already there have a hint that something bad's coming. Genesis 1 and 2 are glorious. They're wondrous. God's creation of the universe by speaking, putting this world together in six 24-hour days that are wondrous. Everything's good. The creation ends with the statement of it's very good. And then God as man and woman, uniting them in marriage, one flesh, they're holding together, they're naked and not ashamed, there's no fear of sin, there's nothing wrong, it's all good. And then chapter 3, now the serpent, more crafty. So chapter 3 contains two scenes, if you will, the fall and ruin of man and the first 13 verses and then the curse of God because of our sin in verses 14 to 24. Satan, the devil, takes the form or makes use of a serpent, twists God's word before Eve. She sees the desirability of the fruit, enters into the lie, believes the lie, believes her own senses, her own thinking more than what God has said and takes the fruit that God has forbidden eats, gives it to Adam, who instead of protecting his wife, leading his wife, submitted to her, ate, and we all now have fallen in sin. The eyes of Adam and Eve are opened. They're ashamed in their nakedness. They were naked and not ashamed. Now they understand shame. They know sin. God comes. They hear him. He calls out to them. The man blames the woman and God. Eve blames the devil. And there we are. Moses begins the uh, truth of our fall into misery and ruin of sin by telling us about the devil. The serpent, we read, is more crafty than all other beasts. You shouldn't find it necessarily strange that the woman wasn't repulsed by the snake as we are today. There was no enmity between man and beast yet then. All was well. In fact, uh, she would have thought it maybe strange to see an animal speaking, but that's maybe what draw her to him. But we see that the serpent, the devil, is a creation of God. And that this devil is crafty. He's crafty. He comes to dupe. and uh, We see him crafty in two ways here. He comes to Eve instead of to Adam. Eve who is created as Adam's helpmate to be submissive to him. And so he comes to her knowing that she would be the one more easily deceived. And then he's very deceptive in taking what God has said and just twisting it, tweaking it a bit. So we see the devil is a liar. And Jesus reminds us in John 8, 44, that he's the father of all lies. Lying is his native tongue. The devil is real. And already at this point, very early, we see the devil is already an enemy of God. He has fallen. He's a created angel fallen from God, taking a third of all angels with him. We also see, though, that sin is something that comes from outside us, outside of creation. Sin isn't a feature of creation. You have to remember that in Genesis 1 and 2, 
everything was good, very good. No sin, no ruin, no fall. And, and the devil comes and tempts Eve. And so evil is an invel- invasion. It's not an invasion so much as a rebellion. They're here rebelling against God. Now, the devil doesn't make us do anything. You'll notice that here. He lies and he twists. He tempts. He's, a, he's an enticer. He's vile. And yet, it takes two to tango. Right. It takes two to tango. So we're not victims. The Bible doesn't have a theology of victimhood in sin. We're willing accomplices in the rebellion. A rebel is one who joins forces with the enemy of God, and that's what we see Eve and then Adam doing here. So we see that the devil takes the truth of God and twists it subtly. Did God actually say? So he's already questioning what God has said. He's questioning God. He's calling into question. The devil's tone here is the thing. There's a note of incredulity. Right? Did God actually say? Your kids do this sometime. Right? Mom says one thing to one child and another child says, did mom really say? He's flattering the woman. He's calling her to consider herself above God. He's calling her to place herself with the gavel in her hand on the judge's chair and put God in the dock. You judge him. Did God actually say? He subtly smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. Doesn't that sound just like us? How many times do we come to God's word, a plain, clear truth, and go, that can't be what it says? Did God actually say? And so this is the rub of our sin. We question God's word. The definition of humility in the Bible is to accept God's word. The definition of pride is to question it. Eve is already here losing the temptation, uh, losing the battle because she is already thinking that what God has said is open for debate. The rebellion is rooted in our hearts long before it plays out in our lives. God has inspired his word by his Holy Spirit. It is eternally holy and wise and powerful. And it is not up to debate. Now, we have to rightly interpret it. We do have to learn it. We do have to have faith to believe it. But Scripture itself is clear. It is plain. The language, for the most part, is able to be understood even by the most simplest among us. And so our problem, like Eve's problem here, is that we believe that question, did God actually say... We, continue, we begin to question if God, not only if God's word is right, but if the intent of it is right. Did God actually say? Did God actually say? Can't you apply that? How about parenting? When your child is disrespecting mom, did God actually say that withholding 
discipline from him is to set my heart on his death. Did God actually say that? We disbelieve it. Does God actually say that debt is dumb and enslaves us to the lender? But I need a bigger TV, and it's only $30 a month for the next 36 months. Did God actually say? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so... You know that God didn't say that back. We see that you shall not eat of one tree. God said yes to everything and no to one, to the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. But Satan goes above God's word. You'll notice here, this isn't a temptation to relax God's commands. This isn't a temptation towards license. This is a temptation towards legalism. This is a temptation to strengthen, to, to go beyond Did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, he's trying to engage her. He knows that God didn't say that. He knows that evil know that God didn't say that. And he's baiting a hook. He's he's exaggerating what God says. He's strengthening. He's going beyond. Now, Eve actually responds well but then follows the devil's path. Eve says, no, we we can eat of any fruit of the tree of the garden. God is a generous God, but God says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. If we read back in 2, 16 and 17, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. God does not say you shall not surely touch it. She's actually beginning to do here what Satan just did. She's exaggerating a bit. She's going beyond a bit. And so the temptation, of course, as we'll see in a moment, is just for more. Expanding on God's word. We want more. Here Adam and Eve live in complete harmony with God and paradise. They have everything you could ever want here. It's beauty. It's lovely. It's peaceful. It's restful. It's, a, it's abundant. It's all good. And she begins to engage with this wily devil and is already laying the seeds for her fall in that she is already beginning to embellish what God has said. The serpent responds in verse 4, you will not surely die. So before it was just a subtle twisting, now it's an open attack. He knows he's got her. The devil doesn't start with open, bald-faced lies. He starts with a little twist, and then when we engage, he knows he's got us. So he moves from kind of a sneaky backdoor questioning to a full-on frontal attack. You'll notice that the first, one commentator pointed out, the first doctrine to be denied in the Bible is the doctrine of God's judgment. You will not surely die. God had said in 2.17, if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. 
right? God's justice is death for sin. The wages of sin is death. And the first doctrine called into doubt is the doctrine of God's judgment. Tell me that doesn't play in our age. You have well-known Christian leaders denying the doctrine of hell. But if you could bring it home, don't you, don't we, the lie that our age is built on, this lie of materialism, that all, you, that all there is in the world, in the universe, is what you can see, what you can taste, what you can touch, is built upon a denial of anything eternal. Any standing before God for any kind of judgment. Right? We don't believe in an everlasting hell, really. might see this play out in parenting. Your child is doing something foolish and instead of allowing the consequences of their sin to play out, we protect our child from them. We don't bring to bear any suffering. We try to alleviate it. We try to pay their way out of it. Sometimes it's the temptation for mothers. Father wants the discipline and a mother wants to correct the father for the discipline. But isn't that just to deny the eternal punishment? We would, in effect, it's what Solomon is saying, we would rather see our children suffer eternally so long as their temporal suffering is removed. We do this ourselves. We see this in the church. We flatter. We flatter a young woman dressing seductively. We flatter a young man who is 16 and not working. And yet there is an eternal consequence for all of our sin. And the day you eat it, will surely die. And the devil says, you will not surely die. In fact, God is just being stingy. God is just withholding from you. God knows that if you eat of it, you'll become more like him. He's trying to keep you from being competitors of his. He, there's a good thing that will happen if you eat of it. And God doesn't want that good for you. So go and eat of it. There's no consequence. Isn't that what we do all the time? Now we have a Savior who didn't do that. We have a Savior who is led into the wilderness by the Spirit where this ancient devil, this dragon, forked tongue, vile, twisted monster tempts him just as he tempted Eve. If you turn these stones into bread, take care of yourself. God's withholding. If you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything. If you throw yourself in the temple, God will protect you. And Jesus doesn't engage. He just quotes scripture and basically says, shut up. My Father will provide for me. And so we have a Savior, tempted in every way as you are, yet without sin. And so where Eve engaged, the Lord and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the God-made man, didn't. Where Eve was willing to go into the serpent, Jesus defeated him. 
And so we have a Savior who is without sin. We have one who is not discontent in his position as a son, but was willing to submit himself in faith to his Father, knowing for the, the Father's good provision. And so we have a Savior who is like us, but very unlike us, and so he can actually save us. That's what we're seeing already here. There will be one coming who is in every way like us, human, God and human, and yet would not fail where Eve and Adam fail. And so we can turn to him in any temptation. We can turn to him in any temptation, any lie, stand firm against the devil, defeat him. But in verse 6, we see the woman entering fully into the temptation. She's giving way. The tree is good for food, she sees. It's a delight. It's a desire. So the temptation has come and internally it's giving birth. She's already imagining herself partaking of it before she does. This is why Jesus said it, it's, it's not only about the actual adultery. It's not only about a man crawling into bed with a woman who's not his own. It's about the lust that took birth in his heart long before that. It's not only about striking somebody in anger. It's about the anger that took root in the soul long before that. Jesus is taking his theology from God's word of Genesis 3, verse 6. This, we like Eve, there's a great discontentment. I wish that was mine. I wish I had that. I can see how that would do me great good. This is materialism. This is worldliness already here. Look what Adam and Eve have. Everything. Everything. Paradise. Beauty. Glory. Provision. No fighting between husband and wife. Beauty. I mean, it's glorious. It's good. A prospect of filling the earth and subduing it. God present with them. They have everything and they still want more. The one thing that they can't have is the only thing that consumes her at this point. She can see nothing else but that one thing. She's lost sight of all of the other goodness of God creation. She's lost sight of God himself. Her heart is already corrupted long before her taste buds are satisfied. It's never enough. The creation begins to control her. She is supposed to control. Adam and Eve were put in creation to control it, to fill it, to subdue it, to manage it, to work it. They are lords of the earth. Now the earth becomes lord of them. They worship the creature rather than the creator. They're fallen. She begins to believe what she 
feels rather than what God has said. She follows her heart. How many of us are bombarded with the message, just follow your heart? This is especially true of women in our age. Just follow your heart. Just do you. Just do what feels right. That's what Eve's doing. God has spoken. God told Adam, everything is for you, but this one thing is a no. If you eat of it, you'll surely die. And here we see in verse 6, she is consumed with her own desire and is totally refusing God's word now. She becomes a law unto herself. Her stomach is her God. This isn't a sin of gluttony here. It's a sin of discontentment. It's a sin of more. They're made to be get life spiritually from God in communion with God and she has totally neglected that and thinks that life comes by what she has and what she can put in her mouth. She's just a worldling. And I, that's why I just think, how can anybody say the Bible isn't readily applicable? How can you say it's like this is a different culture, it's not like ours. Isn't this us? Isn't this America? Isn't this Rhinelander? Don't you drive down Stephen Street by all of the car dealerships and look at all those bright, beautiful cars and want more? Don't you walk down the grocery aisle and I, that and that and that? Don't you look on Amazon and want more? Don't you see what people have on Facebook and think, if I only had that? Isn't that us? And don't we totally get consumed with that? Dream about it. Think about it. Plan about it. And have very little time for God and his word. Isn't that us. Isn't that you? Isn't that me? We are possessed by what God has made rather than by God. We're not grateful. And it's into this world that God sent his son. And God's son was not like this. He didn't have a home, much less a bigger one. He was completely content with what God has given him as God's son to come and be our redeemer. That was enough for him. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Eve grasped. She reached out and took. Christ wasn't a grasper. He was content with his role as redeemer. He was content with his role as coming as redeemer as a servant. And so he serves us as savior, therefore. He undoes what Adam and Eve did. And so one of the things to learn in Genesis 3 is this is our fall into ruin and misery and it's setting you up to need hope. And that hope is God's son alone. The only solution from this fall into misery is Christ. That's it. That's it. You will never scratch your itch with more of anything of this world. You and I were created to delight in God above and beyond all else. 
And you and I are constantly duped into thinking that as long as I get this, if I only have more of that, if I could get this from my boss, if I could get this from my spouse, if my kids would only do this, then I would be good. If people wouldn't treat me like this, if they wouldn't say this, I'd be good. I'd be good, I'd be good, I'd be good with anything but God. And you and I are constantly searching, constantly going after these things. And it's just God. You will not find rest until you find rest in God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is telling you about you here. This is helping you to see it is not found in things of this world, what you need, what you're longing for. It is found in God. You won't find it. You'll search and search and search all the way to hell. And it's it's just God and Christ. It's very simple and it's very pure and it's very lovely and life-giving. Freedom. We do need to talk about freedom. Man was created to choose. And now in the fall, we have lost that freedom, haven't we? We're enslaved by our desires now. We're dead in sin. We are not nearly as free as Adam and Eve before the fall. And when Christ comes and regenerates you by his spirit, you regain this freedom in some measure. And as a Christian, then what you're learning to do is walk in this freedom to obey God. Walk in this freedom to love God's word more than what you feel. You're you're gaining freedom as a Christian, not losing it. God is a God of yeses. The only reason he adds law restriction is because of sin. In the beginning, before sin, there's a billion yeses and one no. After sin, as humankind, mankind, man progresses further and further down the rabbit hole of ruin, he has to add law upon law upon law upon law upon law to guard us, to protect us. And now in Christ, we find freedom to fulfill the law to love God and love man. Christ is freedom. This is why those of you who will not repent of your sin turn to Christ, you're totally warped in your thinking. You don't lose freedom by becoming a Christian. You actually get it. You're enslaved to everything. When you become a Christian, you become enslaved to one, to God who is Father. What do you, you're going to have a master. May it be God in Christ. Look at how good he is. We also have to see that the fall into sin totally flips the creation order on its head. In creation, God is distinct from all creation. He is above and beyond all. God above. He creates Adam, man, first from the ground, breathes life into him, and then Eve from Adam, equal with Adam, personhood, creating God's image, and yet created from him to be his helpmate, to submit to him. And then all creation under them. So God, man, woman, and and, and I'm not saying man, woman is less than man, but in hierarchy. And then creation, and here it's flipped. They listen to the animal. He comes to the woman. The man submits to the woman, and God is gone. And God is gone. And so, so much of sin is just a disordering of God's creation. 
God is a God of order. Order leads to peace and unity and freedom. And we flip it on its head. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 tells us that he does not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority in the church for God made Adam first and then Eve and for Eve was deceived and not Adam. And so Paul rightly exhorts women to submission and to modesty, not because they're less than men in worth and value, not because they're less in intelligence, because by nature, you as women are created to be a helpmate to man, to submit to him. And in submission, which is a good and godly thing, there is a temptation towards deception. And that's why the devil goes after Eve first. And so what sin does is dupe us into thinking that our way is better than God's. Our ordering is better than God's. And so when you have conflict in your marriage, isn't it often related to this? A husband is abdicating his leadership or abusing it. A wife is too much of a doormat or too much trying to dominate her husband. Children rebelling against their parents. So much of sin in our world is just related to lack of submission to the ordering that God has put in it. But again, Christ did not do that. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, equal with God in every way, and yet eternally submitting to God as Father. And in the plan of redemption, the Father told the Son to come to earth, incarnate of a virgin woman, taking on the form of a servant, a slave, taking on humility itself, And the son submitted to the father. He didn't kick against it. He didn't question it. He gladly submitted to it. And so even there, in our rebellion against God's order, we have a savior. We have righteousness for us, even in our rebellion. And we also have a model of how to put it back together. If you want your marriage put back together, look at the order. If you want our church to function healthily, Look at the ordering that God has put here. If you want society to function rightly, submit to God's good order in it. Then Adam and Eve, after sinning, show us how never to repent of sin. God comes to the garden, calls out to them. It's not that he doesn't know where they are. He is actually graciously asking a question rather than coming in strict judgment right away. They're afraid Adam and Eve covered themselves. They realize they're naked. They cover themselves. They take it upon themselves to cover their shame. Their consciences are convicted and they hide. Isn't that so common? We hide our sin. We try to cover it up. They're afraid. And then Adam blames Eve and God. Have you eaten of the tree? Well, the woman whom you gave, gave me fruit and I ate. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. So the woman, what have you done? 
Well, the serpent deceived me. I ate it. It wasn't me. It's everybody but me. We try to cover our guilt on our terms. Guilt is a good gift of God when we sin. But sin even tempts us to cover this good gift of guilt in ways that lead to more sin. What they should have done is becoming aware of sin, so ashamed that they, what they should have done is taken refuge in God and gone to him. They should have gone to God hating their sin, even angry with themselves, seeking his forgiveness. And they don't. That's the right path for us to walk. When we sin, what we should do is be ashamed of it. Be embarrassed by it. Turn to God. Confess it in Christ. Hate it. Even anger themselves, but receiving his forgiveness. Standing in praise to God Almighty who forgives all of our sins. But they won't do this. I'm going to take a little bit of time here. Just to apply this guilt to our world. Guilt becomes a weapon in the hands of the unrighteous, doesn't it? How is our world running right now? Runs on guilt, doesn't it? If you're white, rich, and straight, you're guilty. Right. Male. Did I forget that one? Yeah. And so what the world wants to do is create its own list of sins. White is sin. Rich is sin. Straight is sin. Being male is sin. And then it wants to define atonement. And what is always the atonement for these sins? Money. (laughs) Give money. Remove yourself from this position or that position. And is there ever actually absolution? Is there ever actually forgiveness? Never. There's just more guilt causing you to pay more And so guilt becomes a weapon in our world. Becomes a weapon. There's never forgiveness. There's no forgiveness for the sin of slavery in our world. It's never enough. You'll never pay enough. You'll never give enough. If you're rich, you're guilty of pressing the four. You need to pay more tax. You need to pay your fair share. What that rich is is never defined. What poor is is never defined. What fair share is never defined. It's just more. And so you give more taxes, and the poor are never actually helped. They're kept in more poverty, and a healthy chunk is taken by the bureaucrats who make themselves rich. And if you're white, you're automatically guilty of oppressing non-whites. You must atone, pay up, get out of the way, close your mouth. You're never actually forgiven. And so man defines what sin is, man defines what atonement is, and man never forgives the sin that isn't defined by how God is it. And so what we need to do is turn to God. Atonement in the Bible is always from God to man. 
It's always on God's terms, never on ours. But there's always a functional God of the system. It's either God in heaven or maybe a tyrannical father in the home. Or maybe a tyrannical father in the government. We'll always have a God of the system. And there always will be a list of sins and a list of ways to atone. And in the world, there never is atonement. There's never enough. But with God, there is. With God, there is actually atonement. There is actually forgiveness. There is actually an ending of sin. And a welcome. And a sitting down at table. And so if we will not turn to God, we will turn to a God. It will always be oppressive. And it will never fix anything that's wrong. It will only make it worse. And so we need God. We need God. We don't need to blame anybody else. We need faith in Christ. That's it. So now we know ourselves a little better, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, when Adam sinned, we sinned. We're fallen. We're infected with sin to the tips of our toes. But God sent his son who became man, who lived righteously, who didn't fall like Adam and Eve fell, and through whom all who have sinned in Adam can be regenerated, cleansed, washed, such that our sins are no more and we are made acceptable to God. We are sinful from the womb in Psalm 51. We are children of wrath in Ephesians 2 verse 3. But God, being great in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. You can't cover your shame with your own works. You can't fix your sin by your own efforts. Christ has. And so we need to turn to Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe what we see here in the Bible, to actually live as if it's true. Teach us, help us, oh God. And then help us to turn to Christ, to turn to him for a solution to all these problems. So please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The charge comes from Romans 8. It says there that we should live not as debtors to the flesh, but we should live by the Spirit. For we received a spirit not of slavery to fall back into fear like Adam and Eve, but as adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. But in this world, we suffer. And this is the charge. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, because of God who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage corruption and and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we already have glory in Christ. We have already obtained a measure of freedom. And now we hope for the greater time. So that's what I want you to leave with, hope in Christ for the new kingdom, for the new creation when this is no more. Let's hope for that. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace through faith in Jesus Christ. And amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord and I love you.